0: Good morning. Good, morning. Good morning. Let's begin class of prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to come and fellowship and share and, and worship you. We ask that your spirit will join us and draw us to closer together to you and to each other. We pray in your holy name. Amen. So uh, we are going to have our potluck today after class, and then after potluck, uh, you'll have an option just to sit and fellowship with each other, or for those who uh, would like, uh, Linda will be here, and there will go into the back, conference room in the back, and for those who want to have an additional Bible study, that'll be available as well. So we're doing Lesson 4, Offerings for Jesus, in the uh, quarterly, Managing for the Master Till He Comes, and... Last week, we discussed tithing, and this week, the lesson focuses on the question of offerings and As we think about this, I have a question: uh, since God created everything, Genesis one, and since everything already belongs to the Lord deuteronomy ten fourteen and all things are sustained by him hebrews one three and he holds all things together, colossians one seventeen and since he said specifically in psalms fifty twelve the following quote. If I were hungry, I would not ask you for food for the world and everything in it is mine, unquote. then why are we to return tithes and offerings? For our benefit and blessing, for our benefit be- or oh, you're saying God doesn't need it. Good. Do we need it? we need it?: We need it. There we go. I love that. that's so good. Uh, the primary in this world, in this great controversy, there are two primary antagonistic forces or motives fighting against each other for your heart and mind. And what are those ant- primary, if you could sum them up, primary antagonistic motives are? Yeah. Survival, Survival, to the fittest. Fittest. Survival of the fittest. Survival of fittest, selfishness, that's right, versus? Other-centeredness. Other-centeredness or love, that's right, that's exactly right. And the natural orientation of the human heart since Adam's sin, we're born into this world, naturally... Loving others are naturally self-centered? Self-centered. self-centered, self-centered. We are bent toward selfishness and would be hopelessly lost in selfishness if it wasn't for God's grace intervening in, in our hearts and minds to instill a desire for something more, to draw us back, to convict us of wrongdoing. That's God's interventions in our hearts. If it wasn't for that, we would align with selfishness and we would justify it and we would feel good about it but we don't because it's actually destructive. And this is why salvation is more than being born into the world. Once we're born into the world, we have to be born again, born with new hearts, right motives, have have the fear and selfishness that are the primary drives that we enter the world with replaced with trust and love in God and love for others. So understanding that we have this bent towards selfishness, which Is driven by fear and the desire to make self feel safe and our need to be reborn in order to love and then grow in love, do you see why God gives us the therapeutic prescription of tithes and offerings? It's to give us the opportunity to exercise faith and love. To help us open the channels of our hearts to be able to give and enter into his methodology in how we operate and practice. This does not sound right to the selfish world. The Bible tells us that the more you give, the more you receive. This doesn't sound right. The selfish world tells you no, no, if you want more, you have to hoard, you have to take. You have to not give. If you give, you lose. That's the wisdom of the world. And the world actively frightens people. Look at the messaging you're seeing on whatever screens or other news uh, channels that you happen to frequent. Watch the messaging. The messaging is be afraid, we're going to have economic ruin. We're going to have climate ruin. We're going to have food shortages. We're going to have overpopulation. You and your family are going to starve. You better hoard. You better watch out for yourself. You better get a gun. It's all driven to make you more afraid, so you'd be more self-protected, so you won't actually practice the principles of God and trust him with the future, trust him with how it turns out. That's That's the big challenge. I would like to say that since I've been in this class, I used to carry a gun with me everywhere. Since I've been in this class, I've learned I don't need to do that anymore. And does that mean that you're guaranteed to be safe in this world? No, no, no. no. That's not what it means. It means you Je- trust God. Yeah. Peter Peter carried the gun of his day, it was a sword. That was the that was the weapon of the day. Jesus didn't tell him to uh not carry it, but when he went to wield it, he told him, put it away. (laughs) It didn't keep him safe, though. Their peace was not from self-protection. Their peace was trusting God with how it turned out. So how is it that it works if you give more away, you actually get more? How does that work? Well, first, is God's promise primarily about stuff. Oh. That the more you give, the more stuff you get. Is that the is that the primary purpose? Or is God's promises, or another way say it, is God's promise primarily about increasing the amount of earthly treasure? No. Or is it increasing the amount of heavenly treasure? And what are the heavenly treasures? That, that, what is it God wants to make you wealthy with? Is, he, is, it, is, it, is it lands and silver and gold and that what, stocks and bonds? He wants to give you more, Is that his primary goal for you? What's he want to, what's he want to make you rich with? Spirit. 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 The fruits of the Spirit. Patience, kindness, meekness, gentleness, love, self-control. He wants to make you uh, rich in the things of, of heaven. Joy, love, peace discernment wisdom does god want to give you wisdom maturity of character jesus said matthew 6:19 through 21 Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your your heart will be also. How do we store up treasure in heaven? He he didn't actually say, store up for yourself good traits of character, which I think is still what he wants for us. but, But treasure in heaven. Well, Luke actually expands on this. And so if we uh, read the expanded description of what we've just read in Matthew out of Luke chapter 12, starting verse 22, see if you get some additional insights of what this might mean. We'll start in verse 22. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, about your body, what you will wear. Is that the message that you get on the news? Don't worry about those things. It's It's going to be good. God's got you. Notice the opposite messaging here. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storerooms or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable are are you than birds? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? Since you cannot do this very thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the lilies grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. And, and do not set your heart on what you will eat and dr- or drink. Do not worry about it, for the pagan world runs after such things. How about the godless world runs after such things. And your father knows that you need them, but seek his kingdom and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourself that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also." Boy, Luke sure expanded on what Matthew wrote, didn't he? What does it mean? What do you take away from this? How do you store treasure in heaven?
1: There's
0: only one thing we take with us. There's only one thing we take with us. Character. Character. I've always thought there was two. <laughs> we take our, we take our, our, our character, our, our faith, our love. And to the degree that we are useful in bringing others to know Jesus, we can bring our loved ones with us. And it's not our our ultimate choice for that, but we can be useful in helping bring others to Jesus. Do you see that this message from Jesus is distinctly different than the message you hear from the modern media? That the message of the modern media is designed to create factions based on fear to align together to get more for self while ensuring that if somebody doesn't have some, it'll be the other person. But let's talk about this treasure, the treasure in heaven. How much is peace of mind worth to you? How much is peace of heart worth to you? Or a clear conscience? How much is good health worth? How much is living a life of love and trust worth you? How much is being useful to God and fulfilling his purpose such that you know your life actually matters? You know that uh, that, uh, God's kingdom is advancing through you how much is that worth to you to have purpose and meaning? How much is reconciliation with God and eternal life worth to you? And how, how are we able to experience peace of mind and heart and live lives of love here and now? How are we able to do that? Is it by our initiative? Is it by our hard work? Is it by our ingenuity and creativity? Uh, Is it by our innate abilities we're able to experience any of that? Or is it simply by receiving what God has provided for us in Jesus Christ and accepting the truth, embracing it, loving it, choosing it, aligning with it, and living it? So this idea of the more you give, the more you receive— I want you to conceptualize this, this kind of an idea. Uh, garden hose on, on, on your house and the fire hydrant on the street in front of your house. If you open them both up full blast, which gives away more water? Which receives more water to it? So the more the fire hydrant gives, the more it yeah. receives. In our metaphor, the municipal water supply is a metaphor for God's love. The more you love others and give away this love, the more you receive and it flows through you and you're transformed by that process. Jesus said in John 4, 14, whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again, but the water that I will give him will become a In him, a fountain of water springing up. This is that fountain of love. When you experience God's love, your heart is changed. You begin loving others, it actually grows and it flows out to others. And the more you love, the more you receive. There's a song by Michael W. Smith from many years ago. Maybe some of you have heard it. It's called Give It Away. Have you heard that song, Give It Away? Here are the lyrics. I'm going to share the lyrics of that song. She asked him for forever and a promise that would last But he said, babe, you know I love you, but I can't commit to that. She said, love isn't love until you give it away. A father lived in silence, saw his son become a man. There was a distance felt between them because he could not understand that love isn't love until you give it away. You got to give it away. As we live, moving side by side, May we live to give. May we learn to give. Learn to sacrifice. We can entertain compassion for a world in need of care, but the road of good intentions doesn't lead anywhere. Because love isn't love. till you give it away. You got to give it away. Love is like a river flowing down from the giver of life. We drink from the water, And our thirst is no longer denied. You got to give it away. As we live moving side by side, may we learn to give, learn to sacrifice. There is a man who walked on water. He came to set the people free. He was the ultimate example of what love can truly be because his love was his life and he gave it away. You got to give it away. What do you think? You think can you sing it?: Think I could sing it? Oh, no. No, no. See, the Holy Spirit gives different gifts to different people. Beautiful words.: yeah. Yes. Uh, if, if you go home and go to YouTube and, and you type in "Michael W. Smith, give it away," you can listen to that song this afternoon. Uh, you can find it. It's, it's very lovely. But this is the purpose of God in providing us the privilege of tithing and giving offerings. He wants us to participate in his love, to give away so we can receive more and be transformed to become more like him and reveal him to others. But let me be clear about this. It isn't, the, it isn't about the act of giving. It's about the motive of giving. A person can give from selfish motives, a guilt motive, a fear motive, a resentful motive, a bitter motive, a political motive, an obligation motive. And if the person gives from motives like this, they give and become more selfish, more bitter, more fearful, and more resentful. This is why the Bible does not say, the Lord loves a giver. The Lord loves, that's right, a cheerful giver. If you don't give cheerfully, freely, then you are not actually participating in the motive of love, even if you're doing the act of giving. So with this in mind, that God gave us the practice of tithing and giving offerings as therapy for our souls, a therapeutic tool to practice and help us open the rusted valves of our hearts so that we can give and his love can flow through us, um, what is the number one offering God wants us to bring to him? Ourselves. Ourselves, Ourselves, that's right. And you can find multiple Bible verses that say this. Um, There's lots of them that say it, but Romans 12, 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to the Lord. And if you don't offer yourselves as the first offering, you don't offer yourself as the first offering, then your other offerings probably don't really matter. The motive of the heart is transformed once we offer ourselves. So does that mean that if we don't have offer ourselves first, that uh, they're not to give anything if they don't give themselves? Well, What God wants, God doesn't want our stuff. What he wants, he wants us. That's the bottom line. He wants us. He can, he can make stuff. Okay? But, but your unique personhood, only you can give him that. So in this process of, of conversion, though, an individual may be moved by the Holy Spirit, with motives of a certain compassion, uh, see a, a, a opportunity to help another person, and, and they're moved by that uh, compassion, that altruism, that regard. Uh, they haven't given their heart to Christ yet, but they but they, they care enough to intervene, and they, and they give. That's still the Holy Spirit working, and oftentimes people will give before they're fully converted, and that's process of their transformation, how the Holy Spirit works, can bring them circumstances and opportunities, and, and they Having done that, even though they're not fully converted, generally people experience the positive benefits of that. They have more joy. They have more peace. They actually have more love. They feel better. And that helps them come to recognize God's principles uh, uh, versus the, the, uh, the world's principles. But be aware, Satan perverts tithing and giving offerings. Satan understands the issue isn't about the amount given or the act of giving, but it is about the motive of giving. If he perverted the Old Testament sacrificial system such that they brought sacrifices, thinking that in doing so, they were appeasing God or ba- paying for God. They, got, they actually got to think that God would be more pleased with 10,000 rams and rivers of, of, of blood flowing that, that would make God more happy. The more the animals they gave, the bigger the price they paid. Uh, it was all quite perverted, this idea of bringing offerings. And if Satan can get people to give regularly from fear, from guilt, from obligation, from legal requirement, from some business contract, from selfishness, because they're afraid of God, that God will will punish them if they don't, then he may actually have a lot of givers who are becoming more like him in character. What exactly does it do to the heart if you know that what you're giving is being misused? So I guess if you know what you're giving is being misused, you should be asking the question, why am I colluding with and supporting misuse of, or uh, if you want to put it this way, why, why would you give your child money to go out and buy a gun to kill their spouse if you knew they were going to do that? Why would you do it? Would you do it? Now, if, if you didn't know, that's a different question. But if you knew, hey, I need some money. I'm going to go kill my spouse. Can you give me the money to go buy a gun to kill my spouse? Most of us probably wouldn't give them that money, would we? So I, I think the question would, would go, what does it do to your heart? Well, I think if you are no and you're giving anyway, you should be asking, why? Why am I giving? What is the motive here? Why would I support something that is actually working against what I believe is God's cause? Why would I do that? And then, and then it's, if you've already convinced that, 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 group that I'm giving to is not supporting God's cause, then why am I giving to it? it, it it's going to be something about the self. Well, because I'll, I'll sin if I don't. I'm required. Got to be mad. Because I was taught that you just give without thinking. And so it's an opportunity for personal growth and say, no, I need to give, but I need to give to where it's actually going to advance God's cause. So consider this story, Luke 18, 9 to 14. It says, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else. Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers. And even like this tax collector, even like this tax collector, I fast twice a day and I give a 10th of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. But beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. What do we learn about giving from this story? Does it matter? Is it just, well, he he was paying a faithful tithe. He's a faithful He's a faithful follower of God. Or can you pay a faithful tithe and be actually an enemy of God? Yes. Mm-hmm. You wonder who his God is if he's self-aggrandizing in his speech. Yes. Third paragraph in the lesson says, Our offerings are an evidence of our willingness to self-sacrifice for God. They can be a deeply spiritual experience, an expression of, fact, of the fact that our lives are wholly surrendered to God as our Lord. Uh, to us, As an English idiom says, it is putting your money where your mouth is. You can say you love God, but generous offerings help reveal or even strengthen that love. Leave that up on the screen for a minute. Do the first and and second sentences sound just a little bit off to you? There's something not quite right about the alignment of those two sentences. Sounds like that uh, Pharisee brand. Mm-hmm. So, here's where I'm focusing. Our offerings are an evidence of our willingness to sacrifice. They can be deeply spiritual. Wouldn't it be more accurate to say our offerings can be an evidence? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is it actually truthful to say offerings are an evidence of our No. Willingness to self-sacrifice for God? No. That's not a true statement. They can be in evidence. It's interesting. Maybe you think I'm nitpicking here. I'm being too picky. But I think many legalists, for many legalists in the church, the act of giving is what matters, not the motive. I gave what I'm required to give. And there's a little thing where I go to church. It's called a little tithe envelope. And on there, it says 10% for tithe, and then it breaks down the percentages for all the other places I'm supposed to give. And, and I've already made sure I'm doing my pre-tax stuff, so I'm going to make sure I get this percentage right, and once I turn that check in, I'm righteous. I am absolutely righteous. I always give two cents extra just to be sure I didn't come under by two cents, because then I would be unrighteous. Which Listen. level of moral development was the quid pro quo thing? Yeah, this is the, this is the legalist. This idea that your act is what matters rather than your motive. I'm going to tell you it's the motive that matters. Now, with right motives, you will also live right actions. You will. But you can do the right actions with the wrong motives. Yes or no? Yes. So the lesson seems to validate my concern in the next paragraph, when it says, an offering comes from a heart that trusts in a personal God who constantly provides for our needs as he sees best. Our offerings rest on the conviction that we have found assurance of salvation in Christ. They are not an appeasement or search for God's acceptance. Rather, our offerings flow from a heart that has accepted Christ by faith as the only insufficient means of grace and redemption. So it seems like they're, they're trying to now suggest that in fact the motive does matter. And I'm glad to see that. I'm very encouraged to see that. But once we have the right motive, I will tell you, the actions help solidify the motive into the character. Once you have the right motive, your actions begin to make that motive part of your practice, your routine, who you are. For instance, I have a motive to be honest, therefore I need to actually speak honestly, function honestly, if I want to be honest in heart. Once the motive is there, I've got to actually Put it into practice, and then you, over the time, you become an honest person if you were prior to conversion, a dishonest person. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Monday's lesson asks us to read uh, deuteronomy 16:17 which says, each of you must bring a gift in proportion to the way the Lord your God has blessed you. Each one must bring a gift in proportion to the way the Lord your God has blessed you. Do we take this as it reads? Do we interpret it? Do we apply it literally? Do we process it on principle? Uh is this to, is this a metaphor? Is this a rule that we're to live by? For instance, if your dog gives birth to a litter of puppies, do you donate one of the puppies in the offering plate this weekend? <laughs> to to I mean the the each one it must bring a gift in proportion. That's a proportional gift. Or do you instead do like the Israelites did with their flocks and herds that every firstborn gets sacrificed to the Lord? Do you sa- sacrifice the firstborn puppy? No. Did, didn't hear much enthusiasm for that. <laughs> no, no, no. <clears throat> if the Lord has blessed you with children, do you, like Hannah, dedicate one of your children to be raised by church leaders? No. No no, church. Well, didn't Hannah do that? <laughs> Was she not a woman of faith? Special, 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 special circumstances, okay. <laughs> is, so is, is the instruction in Deuteronomy a rule that we apply thoughtlessly, or is it a principle? An invitation to a relationship and having that flow through. So is it a rule, or is it a principle? It's a principle. It's a principle. It's a principle. And the principle is love. You've received love, give love. God has blessed you, celebrate and give back. Freely you have received, freely give, Matthew 10, 8. The lesson quotes Jesus saying the following. This is out of Luke 12, 48. This is what the lesson quotes. For everyone whom much is given, from much will be required. The lesson plucks that statement out of a parable that Jesus told. Right out of the middle of a parable, they pluck it. It's often dangerous to pluck something like that without understanding so let's read the parable together where you where you find Jesus saying this and see if it helps you or actually makes it more difficult for you. Let's see what happens. This is Luke twelve forty two to 53. The Lord answered, "'Who then is the faithful and wise manager "'who the master puts in charge of his servants "'to give them their food allowance at the proper time? "'It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so "'when he returns. "'I tell you the truth. "'He will put him in charge of all his possessions.'" But suppose the servant says to himself, my master is taking a long time in coming, and then he begins to beat the men servant and maid servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour when he is not aware. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. The servant who knows his master's business and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does, and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given, for everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded, and from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled, but I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am uh, until it is completed. Do you think I came to bring priests on the earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against Each other, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Seems like we've seen that last one at least more than once, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Now, having read that plucked out statement in a larger context, did it clear it up for you? It's like, wow, that's even harder. Is that even more difficult? What is Jesus trying? What is he describing? What's he saying? So, so when you read things like this, it's important to try to go through and define all the players, actors, and metaphorical descriptions. Who are the managers? The, the, the servants of the master. Who are they? The master, of course, is God. But, but the ones who have been put in charge, who are they? Church leaders. Pardon? Church leaders. Church leaders. Church leaders, okay. I'm going to have to go and go with that. People who have taken and accepted the role of working for Jesus, and the and the more responsibilities they have, okay. It's like so. Some people may just be working in their local community, but some people may actually be in offices of some kind of, for a church organization, managing for the, for the Lord. You could take that a bit further and even say, parents. What? Yes, yes, there's a responsibility there too. What does it mean for the Lord's managers to berate and neglect and abuse rather than to feed and to nurture? And that's the example of what people perceive God to be when it is a misrepresentation of God. It's the total opposite. So one one application could be that instead of teaching people the truth about God, they're they're not giving them the bread of heaven. They're instead Uh, misrepresenting God and teaching falsehoods. That's one application. Is that the only? Did you see this actual prophecy, description of Jesus being fulfilled the last two years when certain church leaders, rather than protecting their flock from abuse and coercion of conscience, aligned with governments around the world to assist the governments in coercing the conscience of their employees and members? Yes. Yes. Well, the Lord hasn't come yet. He was supposed to come 150 years ago. He hadn't come yet. We're delayed. We've got to maintain our institutions. We've got to protect our government funding. We've got to uh, you know, survive until he comes. So, so you know what? Instead of feeding the flock, we're going to beat the flock to make sure we keep our government funding. Am I overstating it? Okay. Understating it, he said. What does it mean to be beaten with many blows versus beaten with few blows? This text is often used by those who hold to a punishing God as proof that God will, 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 will he, he's going to beat him. He's going to beat him. That's what it's used. Is that what it means? How do you understand Jesus saying he didn't come to bring peace, but division? Wasn't he the, isn't he described in the scriptures, the prince of peace? But he says, uh, I'm not here to bring peace. I'm, I'm here to bring division. I'm going to turn families against each other. I'm going to divide. But when you hold up the light of the truth and the mirror of truth, people can see how dirty and broken they are. So what law lens are we reading through? It's always come back. What law lens? They made division in, in the church. What's the natural state of the human heart? Selfishness. Since Adam sinned. Selfishness. That's the natural state. And whom do sinners naturally align with, if not for the work of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit? Right. So, that's exactly right. They align with Satan and the the practices and methods of this world. Thus, Jesus did not come to bring peace with the world and with the sin and selfishness of this world. He came to cut away sin and selfishness and to pull people out of this terminal sin condition into his eternal, into eternal life and, and harmony with Him and His Father. Understand, Jesus cannot provide eternal life to people who refuse to leave sinfulness behind. Let me say that Jesus cannot provide eternal life to people who refuse to leave sinfulness behind. He still offers, but they refuse to accept. Jesus cannot provide eternal life to people who refuse to leave sinfulness behind. Yes or no? Yes. yes. True. 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 In other words, in order to partake of eternal life, you have to leave the old destructive ways behind. So that same passage we just read out of the NIV, I'm going to read it to you from The Remedy. And The Remedy, course, coming at it through design law. See if this now just has a different flavor and feel. Jesus gave them this answer. Who then is an intelligent and wise manager, one qualified to share the remedy effectively in order to nurture the master's staff? It will be the most awesome experience for that aid when the master returns to find him reliably doing so. Truly, that aid will be trusted with all the master possesses. But what if the master's aide is self-centered and says to himself, the master has been gone a long time, and who knows when he will return? Or rather, And rather than nurturing the staff, they berate, abuse, and mislead them, and then go on to use the master's resources to party with gluttons and drunkards. That aide will be totally surprised, caught completely unaware on the day their master returns. The master will let the wicked servant go, cutting their relationship and casting them out with all the other counterfeits and frauds who have peddled false remedies. The aide who understands the master, his design, the the problem being addressed and how to apply the remedy, and either doesn't heed his instructions or applies a false remedy, will suffer many blows, a guilty conscience, warped character, damaged reason, broken relationships, and ultimately a destroyed soul. But the one who doesn't know about the remedy or how to apply it and therefore doesn't share it or applies a false remedy will suffer few blows, regret, disappointment, and grief. The more you are given, the more you possess to share with others, the greater your responsibility, and the more gifts you have to give away. I have come to ignite a fire of truth and love upon the earth. And oh, how I wish it were already an inferno, but I have a mission to complete, and the pressure upon me to complete it is overwhelming. Do not think that I have come to make peace with the selfish world absolutely not. I have not come to make peace with selfishness, but to cut selfishness out of the hearts of people. From now on, those who choose the remedy will cut dysfunctional family ties, and a family of five will be divided, two against three and three against two. Love will free a son from the selfish loyalty of his father's ambitions and feuds, and a father from the selfish exploits of his son. Love will sever a daughter from the control of an oppressive and manipulative mother, and and a mother from the selfish demands of her daughter." love will cut through the fear and hostility a daughter-in-law has towards her mother-in-law and a mother-in-law towards her daughter-in-law. What do you think? Everything different, so much better clearer, much better. Do you see how the design law of you just brings clarity? And do you see not only does it bring clarity, it suddenly helps you see uh, God in his beautiful light and it enhances our love, admiration, respect, and awe for God. The lesson asks us to read. Uh, any questions about that? The lesson asks us to read uh, Psalms one sixteen twelve 12 to 14. And this is out of the NIV. How can I repay the Lord for all of his goodness to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will fill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. How can we repay the Lord repay the Lord what does it mean to repay the Lord can we pay well you know we had a need and uh, the Lord uh, you know, we were in debt we owed a, a, a $10,000 and the Lord came and paid it off at the bank and then once we were out of debtor's prison we went out we went to work and we started to earn the money we started saving and after 10 years we got 10000 we took that 10000 and paid the Lord back is that what that's talking about we, we repay the Lord no circle of love. If we think in some legal way, is there anything we can do to repay the Lord? Share the remedy. Oh, I like where you're going with that. (laughs) And he doesn't mean that the paraphrase. (laughs) If you think about what God wants in return... For his sacrifice. Does, does, does God want... See, when you invest something, do you want a return on your investment? Mm-hmm. Whether it's money or whatever, do you want a return? And, and has God invested in us? Yes. Yes. Does he want a return on his investment? Yes. What's the return he wants? Yes. Our hearts and minds. And to share that love. Let his love uh, fill you up and then flow out to others. Share that love. Share so, that's exactly right. And so he wants to see that his sacrifice has the outcome and results he intends, which is to bring those in rebellion against him back into love and trust with him, to see the transformation of heart so that we are restored to godliness and to see us share that with others that bring more out of the pain and suffering of the selfish world into his eternal kingdom. That's the result, that's the reward. That's what he wants. To and when he when he sees that, he goes, "I'm satisfied." It was worth it. So this is how I paraphrased it in the remedy Psalms. What can I give to the Lord for all the goodness he has given me? I will carry to others his remedy to save them and proclaim God's healing character of love. I will keep my promise to the Lord to share his remedy with all the nations. Tuesday's lesson, first paragraph says, The Bible does not give us an order of service or worship. But it appears, I was just looking at my time to see if I want to do this or skip to Wednesday. (laughs) Maybe we'll come back to this. We'll skip on to Wednesday. Because I think, I was just going to get into, uh, in Tuesday's lesson, if you want me to, I'll do it. Um, But the order of worship and much of the things we do in our traditional Protestant Christian churches uh, actually does not come from the Bible or the New Testament. It comes out of paganism. And I was going to just highlight some of those practices. In fact, I'll do that really quick since you seem interested as I said that. Okay, I'm going to list some traditional practices that happen in Protestant churches, and I want you to tell me if that comes from the New Testament and it's part of the early church or it comes from paganism. Meeting regularly in a temple, church building, or professional worship center. New Testament church, paganism. 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 The New Testament church met in people's homes or out in gardens, or under groves and trees by the river, and so forth. Meeting in nature, someone's home. I just gave you the answer to that one. That's an early church. Have a professional paid speaker give an inspiring sermon to an observing audience. Paganism. Having a group discussion led by someone understood to be more spiritually mature New Testament. New, New Testament church. Having an elevated pulpit for the speaker to speak to the audience. Paganism. 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 Having a division between the priesthood and the laity. Paganism. 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 Celebrating Christmas and Easter. Paganism. <laughs> Paganism. Worshiping together on Sunday. Paganism. Paganism. Collecting offerings during worship service. Paganism. 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 Worship leaders who dress in exclusively in distinct clothing that distinguish them from the non-religious leaders. Paganism. 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 Every member having a role, spontaneity in the worship service, freedom to speak with little regulated structure and open discussion. New Testament. <laughs> New Testament. More like what we're doing here. So where did the order of worship that most churches do and the regulated liturgy and structure that we have come from? It came from Roman Catholicism, which came from the pagan cult worships that Rome practiced and, uh, and, and, and took over when, when Constantine converted and Christianized the, the pagan. Anybody been to Rome? Have you traveled? Have you have you toured some of the uh, the cathedrals in Rome? We did. There's some very famous cathedrals you can go in. One of them still has the oculus in the center. It's an open hole where the sun shines in, and all around they still have all the pagan gods in that. But it's a it's a Catholic and Christian worship center now. But the oculus was to worship the sun that would shine in, and, and you could see the, the shadows and stuff that it was putting through. And, and all around, they had the various other pagan Roman deities, statues still in the building. Wednesday's lesson, there's a lot more than that. I just kind of touched the highest surface. There's a ton more than that, uh, that, that, that we do as part of our traditions that actually don't have their origins in Scripture. And, and let's, be, let's be clear. There is nothing evil per se about having a pulpit, okay, or having a particular order of how we do things, or taking up an offering during the service. It it's just it just doesn't come out of of the, of the scripture. Lesson asks us to read Mark twenty one forty one to forty four, and it says Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were, were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people uh, threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in very uh, two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her, her poverty, put in everything, all that she had to live on. What's the lessons? And we're all, we're all familiar with this story. How many times have you heard it? When do you most often hear this story read? (laughs) 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 Offering call. It's time to make you feel that you're not doing your part because you still got some money in your wallet or in your bank account. Put it all in, folks, all in, if you really want to get that blessing. Yes. I've often heard it said, now it's time for you to take part in the service. Now it's time for you to take part in the service. Yeah, that is actually not how the early church did it. If you read in Acts, how did the early church do it? What, what was the instruction from Paul regarding your, your offerings? When were you to do it? At worship time? No. <laughs> at the beginning of the week. At the beginning of the week, when you're doing through your accounts, you decide how much you're going to give and you set it aside. It's not the emotional offering call, the appeal. What is more important to God, the amount given or the motive in giving? Motive. Motive. What about what was asked earlier about to whom one is giving their gift? Does that matter? For the purpose of the giver, it actually doesn't matter the ultimate use of the the money if the giver believes it's going to God's cause. The giver will still get the blessing of participating in God's giving if they believe it's going to be used for good purposes when they give even if the organization misuses it. They're not responsible for the other person's misuse. If they know it's going to be misused, that's a different question. But I say that because I want to read to you the the two paragraphs, the first two paragraphs of the lesson. And it starts with a quotation from uh, Ellen White out of Councils and Stewardship, and then the lesson has a comment. It says, Jesus and his disciples were in the temple court where the treasury chests were located, and he watched those who were bringing their gifts. He was close enough to see that a widow had given two copper coins. She had put in all that she had. But Jesus understood her motive. She believed the service of the temple to she believed the service of the temple to be of God's appointment, and she was anxious to do her utmost to sustain it. She did what she could, and her act was to be a monument to her memory through all time and her joy in eternity. Her heart went through her gift its value was estimated not by the worth of the coin, but by the love to God and the interest in his work that, she, that, that had prompted the deed. Another very significant point, that's the end of that quote, and, that very, and, this, and the lesson goes on to say, a very, another very significant point is that this is the only gift Jesus ever commended a gift to the church that was just about to reject him, a church that greatly deviated from its calling and mission. They recognized the church wasn't doing what it was supposed to do, but they're highlighting the importance of still giving to that church. Interesting. I wonder what that means for us today. Are they suggesting we should be like this woman? And even if we recognize there's a church that is about to crucify the Savior and is no longer completing its purpose and mission, we will be blessed if we, like her, blindly go ahead and keep supporting it. I, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm, Am I over-reading the implication? I, I just found it quite interesting. I thought that, too. You thought that? Somebody else thought that, too. Valentine does speak about the storehouse. But how do we look at the storehouse? Which lawlands are we looking at that? What, so, so was the organization that she was donating to actively advancing the gospel or actively working against it? Now, she didn't know that, did she? So, in her heart, her heart motive is blessed because she's doing what she believes is supporting the gospel. But the organi- now so a couple questions come to mind. This organization, Jesus had already gone in twice, or or maybe is about to the second time, I'm not sure exactly, but at least once, but two times before his crucifixion, he overthrows the money tables, chases out the religious leader, tell them they're misrepresenting God, two times. But this woman didn't know that. She believed that the money was being used for God's service, and God recognized her sincerity of heart, and she experienced the personal blessing that we all experience when we harmonize our hearts with God. However, i got some questions for you. Aren't we told that Jesus and uh, Jesus' followers carried a money bag? and aren't we told that they used that money to help needy people? Isn't that in Scripture? Uh-huh. What if this woman had more information, perhaps she had observed Jesus overturning the money tables? and heard his condemnation of what they were doing. Perhaps she had a brother who was one of the deceitful priests who cheated people. And she knew that at that temple they were cheating and they were not uh, doing God's purpose anymore. And she saw what Jesus was doing. She was convicted that this was the Messiah. She, she knew that he had, a, he had a money bag and he was using it to actually help people in real need. And she gave her two mites to his group instead. Would she have been disobedient to the Lord? Would she have lost her blessing? Would she have received greater blessing? Would she have received greater blessing? No. Same blessing. No. Oh, that was a good one. Half the class is split on that. Her heart. What? It, so so. Yes, her heart motives are the same. But, but in my scenario, something is different. What's different? Her knowledge. Her knowledge. Her awareness of the Savior. She recognizes the Messiah now. She has a different perspective on the mission. Do you think that that's a blessing to people to come into a deeper knowledge of Jesus and the truth? Of course. Yeah. And, 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 and do you think that her capacity for sharing that knowledge as she has become informed of what she is supporting causes her to have a different influence in her community? And does that reap blessings? Yes. So uh, my, my suggestion is she would have had greater blessings had she had this additional information. just There's two sources for those blessings. One is the blessing for giving, which would have been the same. And the blessings from the knowledge would have been great, would have been additional blessings. Well, it depends on what you understand how God works in our life. How does God give us blessings in our character and our minds and our hearts? The result of the opportunity. So, John is called John the Beloved, and most people believe that he was loved more by Jesus than the others. He is more accepted. There you go. There you go. Did Jesus actually have more love in his heart for John? Than the others, or was John more open to receive the love, and therefore could operate and flow through him more? So he was loved more functionally, not more emotionally or attitudinally. Okay, and so these blessings that we get from God, as we are able to come into harmony with Him, there is a cognitive blessing that's but there's also a experiential blessing that grows in our functional knowledge or experiential knowledge of God, and that's just our cognitive knowledge and our practice with him. Yes or no? Our characters mature. We solidify. We become settled and sealed into his methods and practices. I'm going to suggest to you that yes, she was blessed from a sincere heart in giving to the temple. She would have been much more richly blessed had she had the information to make an informed decision to redirect her funds to Jesus' ministry while he was here on the earth. I appreciate what you shared about um, Ellen White's uh, giving last week about how identifying the needs and, and the, the pastors and the workers that were inadequately funded and able to direct, appropriately direct, funds she had set aside for God to those individuals. That that was uh, very helpful. Thank you. You're welcome.: Thursday's lesson one says, uh, "We're asked to read the story in Mark 14:3 through9. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table at the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of, of very expensive perfume made to, of pure nard she broke the the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you and you can help them any anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. What lessons do you learn? Some really fun lessons out of this. Why did some criticize her? They, <laughs> they were selfish. <laughs> the okay, so we're told, and in, uh, in some Bible commentators will tell you, that uh, the, the criticizer's criticized primarily because they wanted the money to go into the purse that they held and they could maybe embezzle a little from it and they could control it. It was about empowering them, the treasurer and so forth. Judas was the purse holder. Judas was one of the criticizers and he, he wanted that year's salary to go into his purse and give him more power in the organization and, and more opportunity to influence the community by where he spent his dollars and, and uh, subsidized different programs that he wanted to have his name put on and a building project that could say, you know, Judas Hall and those types of things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Aren't they self righteous? Yes, self righteous. Yes, yes. So they're criticizing. Jesus calls them out on it. Uh, who had the right heart motives? The woman with her alabaster or the critics? Well, what does Jesus value? The heart motives, again. Would she have now, now walk through it? We know what she did, we know it was criticized. Let's throw this scenario. This woman herself, of her own volition, becomes convicted that she wants to take that alabaster, sell it, get the money, and give the money to Jesus and his disciples to help others. If she would have done that of her own volition because she wanted to support the cause, would she have been wrong? No. No. Would that have been, would she have been blessed by doing that? No. So understand the point of the question. It really wasn't about whether one act was right or another act of giving was right. They're both right. Both were right. It's about the motive again. Who's in charge of the decision? Were the critics wrong? Now, very, listen to my wording very carefully. Were the critics wrong for recognizing the money could have been used in another way? Were they wrong for having that awareness? <laughs> No, that was perfectly okay to say. You know, that money could have been used here. That's okay. We we have that happen all the time, right? Were the critics wrong for bringing up the fact? in that context and in that place and in that way that the money could have been used somewhere else. Yes, they were wrong for bringing it up because they brought it up to criticize and to undermine the gift, uh, to make maybe themselves look more righteous in Jesus' eyes and her to look wasteful and embarrass her. So it wasn't even all about controlling the money. It was about positions of power and the structure and, and getting Jesus to think better of them and less of her. I mean, these dynamics are at work and you see them. I can tell you it happens all the time in relationships, in groups. (laughs) But what if the people who said it had no selfish motives? They, they, They weren't jealous. They weren't wanting to control money. They really were one of those community social workers who worked constantly with the needy and they just came in from a very difficult community where they were in, where there's hundreds of children that are hungry, without shoes, without food, and they just had this deep passion in their heart, and they just looked at that, and they thought, oh, all those kids, I gotta help today. And that was their genuine motive. Would it have been right then to bring it up? No. no. Quick no. What about the rest of you? No. 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 what well, they knew Jesus. <clears throat> they knew that Jesus could beat those children. Yes. Mm-hmm. And what it would be. Take Jesus out of the equation. It's New Testament church. Jesus isn't there. Same. Offerings being brought, something similar. The question we're really going for here is, Is it ever right to criticize somebody else's heart motive for giving? There you go. Who has the responsibility to decide where their gift gets placed? The, the giver. The giver, period. Yeah. Yeah. And how the gift gets used. Even if a if righteous motives only wanted to help the poor kids, and you somehow criticize the gift that is going in another direction to another cause, but it wasn't your gift to give, You've, you've crossed a boundary. And that's the point I want to get across. It's not our place to judge other people's giving and gifts. And i will tell you, this happens a lot. A lot. You'll have lots of people coming along, trying to tell you where your gifts should go. And try to make you feel guilty if you don't place their, your gifts in the authorized receptacles. Jesus said this in Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 38. 38 to uh, to 4, yeah, 38, yeah. It says, watch out, you teachers of the law. They like to walk around. You say, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplace and have the most important seats in the synagogue and places of honor at the banquets they devour widows houses and for a show make lengthy prayers such men will be punished most severely what do you think that means devour widows houses take advantage of them take advantage of them but in, in what way economically economic exploit them get them to give their their sustenance their resources To this religious cause. Donate! Donate! Support the cause! Support the cause! Couldn't it also be translated that they're using for themselves the funds that were intended for the widows? Yes, 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 yes. Because that's what the church funds were being used for. They weren't actually being used to help the widows. Okay? Mark chapter 7, 9 through 13. You have a fine way of setting aside the commandments of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, "Honor your father and mother." And anyone who curses the father and mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father and mother whatever might help you otherwise uh, have might otherwise have been received from me is korban—that is, a gift devoted to God. Then you no longer let him do anything for his mother and father. So this was a way that they could justify under the under the guise of helping the church keeping everything for themselves. I get to keep all my wealth for myself, don't have to help my family, as long as I declare that in my will, when I die, I've left it to the church. And in fact, once I put it in my will, that's what Corban means, basically, when I die, it's, it goes to, I put in my will that my assets and my resources are to go to the church or the church university or whatever. We might even set up a trust department to help people make these wills. <laughs> <laughs> and once I've dedicated it to go to the, to, to the church when I die, if I spend it on other things, well, then I'm cheating the church. This is the perversity that they set up. I'll just leave it with you. I'll tell you the, the bottom line is God has given us tithes and offerings as a resource and therapeutic tool to help us participate in, in his kingdom and grow in our faith and love. And each, and God judges the motive of the heart. And he wants us to be informed and intelligent givers to actually give where to the best of our knowledge the resources will be used to advance his kingdom. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love. We thank you so much for what you have given to us. And we are so humbled and we are so thankful. And we ask for your spirit now to transform us, to be givers in your kingdom, that we can give what you have given us back to others in our community to advance your kingdom, that you might come soon. We pray in your holy name, amen.